Welcome to an unexpected yet very excellent bonus episode of Late Edition Crimey Chronicles. I'm Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee Enterprises and the co-host of Late Edition Crimey Chronicles. So, our next series is set to coincide with an investigative set of articles published out of Buffalo, New York. But if you've been following the news lately, you know that that city was hit with a pretty intense blizzard at the end of December. And then also, they've been following the story of Damar Hamlin, the Buffalo Bills player who collapsed on the field a week ago. As such, the publication timeline for their set of stories has drifted a little bit, and we will be following suit. What you get today, though, is a self-contained episode that originally ran in August of 2021, titled The Night Elvis Presley Stopped a Fight in Madison, Wisconsin, which does exactly what it says on the tin, and somehow so much more. Yesterday would have been the King's 88th birthday, so it's a serendipitous bit of timing. You'll also get my interview with Tom Still, a former Wisconsin State Journal reporter and later editor, and who is currently the president of the Wisconsin Technology Council, who broke the story back in the summer of 1977. We hope you enjoy this encore presentation, which will start after this quick break. With Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, we are presenting notable true crime stories as reported by journalists for the dozens of various Lee Enterprises-owned publications from around America. Previous seasons have detailed murders in Oklahoma and Nebraska, and you can find those archived further down in your feed. But for this week, uh, we've got a special one-off episode that is a bit more whimsical and light, comparatively speaking. It's about the time that Elvis Presley stopped a fight in Madison, Wisconsin, one summer night in 1977, and it will be followed by an interview between myself and Tom Still, the Wisconsin State Journal reporter who got the early morning call and ultimately immortalized the incident just a handful of weeks before Elvis would pass away on August 16th, 1977. We've got some more great seasons coming up that we're still working on, which will be hitting your podcast feed in about a month or so, which means you should absolutely subscribe if you are not already to get those the moment that they drop. But now, here's the article followed by an interview with former Wisconsin State Journal reporter and editor, Tom Still. From the Wisconsin State Journal, Saturday, June 25th, 1977. Elvis in town in time to halt East Side Fight by Thomas W. Still of the State Journal. Elvis Presley, the 42-year-old rock star who kicked sand in the faces of countless beach bums during his movie career, muscled into a real-life brawl on Madison's East Side early Friday. Only minutes after flying into the Dane County Regional Airport, Presley halted his limousine along East Washington Avenue to break up a fight involving a 17-year-old service station attendant and two other youths. All right, I'll take you on, challenged Presley, who left his heavily guarded entourage shortly after 1 a.m. to quell the brief fist fight at the Skylane Standard Service, 1506 North Stoughton Road. Keith Lowry Jr., a La Follette High School junior and son of the service station's owner, was struggling with two other youths 
when Presley decided to intervene in the fracas. Presley, arriving in Madison for a Friday night concert, apparently surprised his parents, managers, and three bodyguards by leaving his car to improve the fight's odds. That was Elvis, no doubt about it, said Lowry, who broke off the fight with his assailants at the sight of the swivel-hipped singer. He was overweight and had jet black hair. Presley, reportedly skilled in martial arts, never threw a punch in stopping the melee, which ended without serious injury. Lowry said the fight stemmed from a disagreement with one of the youths, a former employee of the service station. He, Presley, was willing to fight. That's the bad part, said Madison Police Detective Supervisor Thomas J. McCarthy, one of several officers who beefed up security for the Rockstar's airport arrival. McCarthy said the fight ended as soon as they, the youths, realized who they were up against, with Presley urging an end to the struggle, still decked out in a blue jumpsuit worn during a Thursday concert in Des Moines, Iowa. Presley didn't leave the service station until tempers had cooled. Elvis asked, is everything settled now? According to Bruce Frey, a Madison resident who witnessed the exchange. The singer shook hands with several onlookers before climbing back into his car, McCarthy said. And several photographs were taken to commemorate Presley's biggest brawl since Jailhouse Rock. McCarthy said the rock star was later amused at his role in the episode. Did you see those guys' faces? Presley asked after climbing back into his car. And that was my reading of Elvis in Town in Time to Halt East Side Fight by Tom Still of the Wisconsin State Journal that ran on the front page on June 25th, 1977. Stick around for the interview that I conducted last week with Tom Still himself. Hi. Good afternoon, Tom. Hey, Chris. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Hey, how do we look here? I think we look just fine. Yeah. Let's see. When did you start working at the State Journal? And was it in politics at the start or? No, it was a general assignment. You know, just I think I was covering uh, suburbs. I mean, there was literally a suburban reporter at that time. And then uh, you know, different levels of local government. You know, I probably covered a lot of different beats over time um, or filled in for them. But I eventually, um, you know, covered the Capitol and was eventually the chief political writer before I was uh, editorial writer and editor and then um, associate editor. So what were the, the years that you worked there? Because you're at the... I run the Wisconsin Technology Council. That's it. That's yeah. it. Right. And so uh, I was there late 76. I had graduated high school and college real early. So I was like, you know, so green behind the ears, right? Wet behind the ears, whatever the phrase is. And then sure. until 2002. So we're here to talk about the time that Elvis broke up a fight on... East Wash. Yeah. That would have been 77. So that would have been, you know, within the first couple of years of you being there. Yeah, probably um, six, eight, six to seven months or so, something like that. And this was from the the second time that Elvis had performed in Madison because he performed in 76. 
Right. And I think it was it was less than a year mm-hmm. between that and him coming back. Right. He would have performed um, uh, the time when I was, you know, brushed up against it was uh, June of 1977. And he had, pref- I, I think it was October or so of 76 that he had uh, had been here previously. But I, I don't think I, I don't think I was here quite yet. I mean, it definitely seemed like it was the, uh, you know, Colonel Tom Parker trying to, you know, just squeeze as much as he could <laughs> out of yeah. the tail end of the career. Could be, could be. And I remember I've looked up a bunch of the the coverage from 76, and it definitely seems like the entire city kind of lost its mind a little bit about Elvis coming. I mean, you know, there were people waited overnight outside of the the Alliance Center to to get tickets. And it sounds like that that first trip went over just fine. Were you covering stuff then or no, I like I said, I don't think I was. I was uh, in Madison quite at that point. I came along not long afterwards, though. I mean, yeah. as I looked at the date of the story you sent me, it was uh, October or so of 76. I think I was, I was probably here by November or so. Gotcha. And then 77 is when he came back through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how, how, how did it work at the time? Like, I mean, did you just get a phone call or was there a police blotter that you were following or how did it fall to you to cover this, this story of. Yeah, I was basically a general assignment reporter and uh, I was working the uh, three to 11 shift, which of course with the state journal being a morning paper, there were certainly a, you know, a number of reporters who would, would have been around that late, if not later. Sometimes I think there were, there were also six to two shifts for reporters as well, because the deadlines were pretty, pretty late, um, you know, in terms of getting stuff in the paper. So although I was not the regular police reporter, police and fire reporter, and that was a designated, you know, job, uh, that was uh, someone named June Diekman, kind of a legend in the State Journal newsroom at the time. I think she must have been off that night because uh, a detective with the uh, city of Madison, a guy named Tom McCarthy, called and said hey you won't believe this but elvis just broke up a fight on the east side (laughs) and i said you're right you're right i don't believe it i figured it was some kind of initiation thing you know with with, uh, the cops just having fun with a new reporter right and especially one young as i was (laughs) and so but lo and you know detective mccarthy uh who i believe has since passed on said no this is this is true this is what happened and this is you know this is where it was and and so um that was already late and i believe it was after elvis had completed his concert at uh, what is now the alliance center at dane county coliseum and so i um i hopped in the car and drove out there and by the way this was at the corner of uh stoughton road and uh east washington avenue there was a uh, gas station there at the time. Um, it's now a car dealership. It was uh, it was Skyline Standard Station. That's what it was. So I drove out there, and by then there was really nothing going on, and nobody around it. But I confirmed it. You know, was somebody there? I forget who it was at this point. Yeah, uh, this happened. Really strange. I mean, you know, Elvis getting out of his limo. That began the process of me getting some different names, like, well, who, who was here or who do you think was here? The owners 
of the station, his son was um, a fellow named Keith Lowry. And his son was uh, the one that two other guys were, you know, engaged in some kind of a scuffle with him. And uh, Elvis, in his uh, limo, which I believe was like a 64 Cadillac, is passing by on his way to the uh, on the way to the Lions Lions Center from uh, from the airport, sees this going on, and stop. And you know he had, uh, Tom McCarthy was was the the private security detail in the car, and I I came to find out later. I mean it was other people like Elvis's uh, father and some other types who were also in the car. I didn't know that at the time, but he stopped it and and then went on to. To basically break it up in my story, which came out, you know, not the night of not the morning after the fight itself, but the following day, because I had to go back and retrace steps and, and talk to all kinds of people. And he and Elvis, um, I'm, you know, was told from a couple different sources. And all right, I'll take you on. And this was, you know, he didn't like the two versus one <laughs> aspect of the of the scuffle. And so it was uh, the uh, Keith Lowry I was 17 at the time. He was the service station attendant and son of the owner and uh, two other guys. Lowry, and my quote from him was, that was Elvis, no doubt about it. He was overweight and had jet black hair. I always thought that was a, <laughs> I mean, the guy, the guy just jumped out of a, a limo to not only, you know, break up a fight, but give you a story that you're going to be able to dine out on for the rest of your life. Yeah, and and you're gonna immediately the first thing that you're gonna be quoted in the paper is yeah he was a big fat guy <laughs> right right and it turns out I don't think he was actually that heavy at that time he might have you know he might have had some other things going on obviously because he died within I think 53 days after that but anyway it was uh, and then here's the irony uh, there was another witness I talked to a guy named uh, Bruce Fry. Bruce later became a Madison police detective and he, he was maybe 20 at the time. And I was, you know, <laughs> barely older than that. And he was, um, he, you know, he was among those who saw it as well. Cause he had kind of followed, uh, he was going to the concert. He kind of followed the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the limo from the airport entourage. Yeah. The entourage as it was. And, um, you know, and nobody got, nobody got seriously hurt. I know that. <laughs> and all Elvis had to do was basically jump out and, you know, assume a karate position or something. <laughs> you know, imagine how surreal that was, right? If you're if you're there and it's like, uh, so everybody stops fighting because it's truly Elvis. And, you know, there was no mistaking that it was Elvis. Elvis later was joking and McCarthy said something about this later, uh, later on about, hey, did you see? Elvis said, hey, did you see the look on those guys' faces? <laughs> then he also said, the quote I had at the time from, you know, piecing this together was, it, this is Elvis, is everything settled now? So, um, you know, really quite the scene. I was looking back at some of my lines on this, and apparently he took, he, Elvis shook hands with some of the onlookers, climbed back in the car. Actually, some photographs were taken, and where those are to this date, I, I don't know. And I don't know if anybody knows, but maybe you will figure it out, Chris. But I would love to know. I know that in doing research and, you know, searching Elvis's name and photographs and stuff from around this era, 
not long after when when he passed there were classified ads that were being run i don't know if they were submitted by people from out of state or just you know looky loos trying to get copies of the photos or whatever but people were definitely interested in the photos and as far as i know they have never turned up yeah that's my understanding as well and i noted in the the photos were taken to commemorate Presley's biggest brawl since Jailhouse Rock. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was really interesting to try to piece it together. Over time, I talked to maybe, you know, some different radio stations and others, uh, usually around the anniversary of Elvis's death. And I wrote, you know, some other columns about it myself over time. And then some others have followed up on it because it's still, you know, for many people, it's one of those unbelievable things. But there are so many eyewitnesses to the fact that it happened and would have no reason to to make any of this up. So it was, um, yeah, it's been it's been basically verified many times over over the years. I mean, I know that it has it is stuck in Madison lore Mm -hmm. with the guy who was driving the limo. Right. His obituary mentions that. Right. That was the fellow Eric Schumacher, I believe was his name. And um, he had more detail as well, a lot of corroborating detail. He was only, also a very young guy at the time. And uh, Bruce Fry, um, he was interviewed by uh, the Journal Sentinel some years ago now, probably maybe 10 years ago. And, um, you know, he was there just as a fan and later became a detective. And he's, you know, tried to piece together more things himself over time. Yeah, I'm incredibly fascinated because I know, I mean, we know Keith Lowry, but I don't know if the the other like the the two on one you know fight the 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 other two guys have ever been identified. I think at some point I talked to, them, and I'm trying to remember you know where one of them I thought was in Texas. I think that might be where Keith ended up. Yeah, I think he actually is. Or last last I read in in the paper, um, I think somewhere right. in like the late nineties or whatever, somebody caught up with him. And I think he's actually yeah. working in another gas station. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for another fight. Right. Right. I think at some time I, I might've had the names on them or a name mm-hmm. of one of them, but I, I kind of lost my memory or files or whatever. It was. But, but it was a pretty fascinating time. Uh, Doug Moe, who uh, was with the Cap Times and the State Journal at different times, also did a piece on this in like 2007. So he was tracking down some of the uh, folks involved. Yeah, it really has kind of stuck. And I think part of it probably has to do with it getting covered when it happened. Right. And then there was, you know, at least I think two or three stories between the Cap Times and the State Journal two months later when Elvis passed. I think there were, Yes. I think maybe both publications did interviews with Keith Lowry. Yeah. So there was that much more corroborating and expanding on, on the story. Yeah. And I know when, when the car lot opened up, mm-hmm. they had a ceremony with a plaque. There right. was a plaque on the corner that you can find. Correct that identifies and they had limos with Elvis impersonators <laughs> that, you know, jumped out and, and stopped this mock fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Further cementing this 
ridiculous moment in, in Madison history. In, <laughs> it really is. In, in the record books, yeah. It's the ultimate uh, hyper-local car lot spectacle of <laughs> trying to sell cars. It is, it is so funny. It, what, until recently, I just taught one class uh, at the UW-Madison, and it's a communications class. And again, you know, my full-time job, I'm president of the tech council. So, you know, a lot of different things that we do, but in the class usually as an intro, I, I, I did this, this sort of quiz. Tom still as a reporter covered this, you know, whatever. And I'd put a multiple choice thing and they basically be all of them, but I ended with a picture of the plaque, the Elvis plaque, <laughs> which is still there to this day, as far as I know, I don't know if it, uh, the last I checked, it was a little weather beaten, but maybe it's been replaced since then. I feel like I maybe saw a photo of it on Google Maps and the actual plaque itself might have been removed or defaced, but I, I walked past there about a year ago. Mm -hmm. It's, it is there. Um, <laughs> okay. So you had been working for the State Journal for less than a year when this story came down right. and you were, you know, in, in the hot seat, just happened to be the one to, to get it. Right. And it has gone on to not necessarily define your career, obviously. I hope not. <laughs> but it's definitely, I mean, like you said, when you're doing the introduction for your classes, it, it gets, it gets mentioned. And yeah. I would imagine it's probably the story that you are asked about most often. And I mean, you're, you're still getting, you know, calls for interviews and stuff. Well, obviously I did, but. <laughs> hey, that's why we're here. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's one of the strangest things that I ever covered, obviously. And so that's, that's part of it. Right. I mean, it's just, it's just a, kind of a journalistic oddity, but you know, over time I covered, boy, local government, state government, politics, business, even a little bit of education, ran our editorial page was associate editor. So, you know, a lot of great things happened during that span before I did leave uh, the state journal. But this is this is the one that often comes up, even though, you know, I covered, gosh, eight different national political conventions and presidential candidates and would-be candidates and everything else in town and spent a lot of time on some, some fairly serious investigations. But it's Elvis <laughs> that you're occasionally asked about. Which is fun. It's fun, and it's it's uh, it's great to kind of think back on that and what the newsroom was like then too. You know, newspapers are are generally far different creatures today than they were back back in that era, which was kind of the heyday of newspapers in a way. As I noted, I was I, I think I was just covering police that night, and because uh, June Diekman, who was sort of a legend uh, at the paper was the regular police reporter and she must have been off or something. She was a classic. We're talking spiked heels. And, you know, I remember one of my jobs would be like running across the street someplace and grabbing a six pack of beer to put in the cooler, like in the water cooler in the newsroom, that would keep it cold for June. And of course everybody smoked or a lot of people smoked in the newsroom. It was just a, you know, just a very different place, but a lot of good reporting great reporters that I, and, and editors that I had a chance to work with. And uh, people were, you know, it was a pretty aggressive time. I mean, it was a, a well-staffed newsroom that was trying to cover a lot of things. Yeah. 
I mean, this is one of the most absurd things that I can think of to happen in in Madison's history that that I'm aware of. Have you ever encountered anything that is on par with this in a way of just strange, serendipitous, I don't know, like right place and right time of <laughs> anything along those lines? I, I'm trying to think of other things that, I mean, you know, other things that were somewhat notorious, Barbara Hoffman and uh, the murders that were uh, tied to her. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what's in the detail about it, but, you know, there were a lot of people who were, uh, took part in that trial. For example, uh, later Governor Jim Doyle was uh, a prosecutor in that trial. If you go back and look at some of the things that maybe even going back way back, uh, Charles Lindbergh landed here at some point. Not that it was absurd. I'm, I, I think it was probably part of a larger tour, but you know, kind of thing that would uh, that would generate headlines. But otherwise, you know, the flamingos on Bathroom Hill and the Statue of Liberty in the middle of Lake Mendota, those are sort of iconic in terms of Madison. Both of which still live on. Yes. Every few years, they'll they'll trot out the, the Statue of Liberty again. Right. And obviously, I mean, the Flamingos has become, I mean, that's the, the soccer team here is the, the Flamingos. Yeah. Right. You know, it's really become deeply enmeshed, I think, in the, the city's identity. In a way that you know, the, was it was it the pail and shovel party? Was that it? The uh, shovel party. Uh, Leon Varjan uh, was the uh, student body president, if I remember that correctly, or or not. Well, he was head of this student party, whatever. Later became a math teacher, but he was the he was the brains behind all of that. You know, Madison at that time was also you know, a lot smaller than it is today. And the economy looked a lot bit different too. This was truly a state government and university town with a smaller American family insurance and Oscar Mayer. Let's see, Madison Kipp was here. And there were a few other, you know, there was it was a little more of a light manufacturing town at that time on the on the private side than anything. And uh, that began to change mid-80s. And this was a story that I was involved in as well, but uh, the the birth of University Research Park and where that is today, and that's where our offices are. It was a, an experimental UW farm. There was a fair amount of controversy around, you know, turning the farm into a potential research park. And there were a bunch of folks who had pushed for it at kind of at all levels around town. Bob Spiegel, who was the editor of the State Journal, wrote a number of columns on this and editorials, having seen what had gone on in other places around the country in terms of a burgeoning tech-based economy. David and Jim Carley, then Chancellor Irving Shane, Mayor Joel Skornica were all involved. So it was truly this kind of, and Bob Brennan, who was head of the Chamber of Commerce, truly this public-private kind of effort to think about how do we best diversify the economy in Dane County. And true enough, you, you look at what's going on here today, you look at what we do through the Tech Council, that's been, been a big part of the, the Madison footprint over time, but it wasn't always that way. No, no, it wasn't. My biggest takeaway from the Elvis story is just that anything can happen. <laughs> yeah. Like at any point, I mean, you know, 
Keith Lowry was was having he was he was having a rough night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then it everything just turned around on a dime in a way that never ever could have predicted. Um, and yeah, I just I love the story so much. It's so good. I mean, and you know me as like wet behind the ears reporter at the time on the night shift, not all that experienced at all, right? I mean, there were probably people looking at me sideways like, really still? <laughs> Tell me again how this happened. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was you know, literally it started with an old fashioned tip from uh, Detective Tom McCarthy, and uh, which I didn't believe initially. I thought they were, they were messing with me. But. Yeah, which, yeah, totally. I mean, it is, that was one ridiculous phone call to get. <laughs> it was. And I think it, it, and I think the only reason I might have got it was, uh, as I think back on this, it probably came in on, on June's phone, June Diekman. And I was, you know, part of the deal was we kind of had to watch all the different scanners and whatnot. And because Tom was off duty when he was doing this Elvis security gig, he had probably just called uh, June's phone and got me another right place at just the right time right thing for for everybody for everybody. For, for keith for you for for elvis i guess for elvis yeah it was fascinating this has been uh really wonderful thank you for for taking the time and uh is there anything else that you've got or oh of course i'm just gonna look here in a second i mean um uh, you know other de- i'm trying to think of you know some other details that have uh, surfaced over time mm-hmm. yeah I, Schumacher said that Vernon Presley was in the car. That came out later. I did not know at the time. Hmm. And also, um, he said that Elvis's girlfriend and father's father of the girlfriend was were there, but I never knew it. That's a... <laughs> it's like you know who wasn't in the car, right? It's like, yeah. yeah. It's like Babe Ruth called shot home run or something. I mean, everyone was there. Yeah. Everyone was there. Uh, I guess in that 76 visit of Elvis, he had reserved an entire two floors at the at the Edgewater, which is pretty funny in itself. When he came in 76, I think the, uh, the State Journal, and I know, I mean, there's, you know, so much overlap in the coverage between the State Journal and the Cap Times. I can't remember who, which, which one it was, but they I think sent, sent a reporter to cover, just to hang out at the hotel. <laughs> that was... Um, that was Roger Gribble, the late Roger Gribble, who was a state journal reporter, um, covered mostly education. And so, but, you know, back in the day, if you're a reporter, you're also general assignment when other things are going on. And so that must have been, you know, what what Roger picked up on that. Great guy. Also one of the, one of the founders of the uh, then state journal softball team. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm so intrigued. I know that there's the photos which presumably exist mm-hmm. somewhere. And I don't know if it's just there's some undeveloped roll of film that's in, you know, someone's grandparents <laughs> in a box in someone's basement in yeah. Madison. Right. I know he also uh, Elvis at at both the 76 and the 77 concerts was throwing scarves out into the audience. Every, everyone 
got a scarf. And so I'm wondering, you know, is, are, are there any of these Elvis scarves in, in a oh. drawer somewhere that, yeah. you know, have been, you know, hung on to for, for this long? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised a bit if there are. And, you know, one thing I only found out early, later, too, was that, you know, he had this kind of Vegas era jumpsuit on and it was a blue color. Apparently it said DEA on the back, as in Drug Enforcement Agency. First of all, there's some irony there. But second, apparently it was because he had expressed some interest to, uh, to former President Nixon about being a part of the drug enforcement effort. So uh, really interesting experience going back and piecing it all together as best as I could, you know, at that time. I remember, you know, there are a lot of editors who, you know, are making sure, are you sure of this? What are your sources, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. The whole thing checks out. The whole thing checked out. Continues to check out. Yeah. Yeah. If anybody's got those photos, let me know. <laughs> we can right. we can have it, you know, continue to, to get corroborated and find more depth to it. Right. Right. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. And yeah, thank you so much for, <laughs> for everything you did for the paper. And Oh, yeah. Yeah. What a wonderful place. What a wonderful group of people to work with. Yeah, wouldn't trade it for the world. And, you know. Are you still doing a weekly column for the business section? Correct. You know, it's, I think it's muscle memory at this point, right? I mean, in terms <laughs> of being able to write. But of course, you know, we've got a really great front seat here, you know, for what's going on in the tech related world and some other things in public policy. So you know, it uh, works out really well that way. Fantastic. Well, thank you for listening to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles. Like I said above, we've got more great seasons coming along shortly. So make sure that you're subscribed to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles wherever you listen to your podcasts. The show is produced and edited by me, Chris Lay, with tremendous thanks to Tom Still. For Lee Enterprises, I'm Chris Lay, and thank you for listening. <laughs>